You're listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Georgetown. For more information about Redeemer Georgetown, connect with us on social media or check us out at www.redeemergeorgetown.com. Well, we are going to be in, as I read, Psalm 131 this morning. Uh, the words will be up on the screens, but I would love to invite you, if you have your Bible with you or a smart device, uh, flip it open. Uh, Click it on and turn there for yourself. Uh, as we get to spend time together on Sundays, as, as, as Pastor Robert or I come up and we get to preach, this is not meant to be a one-way exercise. This is not a place of expert and amateur divide. This is a place where a family comes together and we sit before our Father together and we learn together. And then we take that and we gather together in gospel community. And so my, my request is that you, as you sit there, would, would listen actively, if you will, uh, with anticipation that the Lord actually wants to say something to you this morning. Listen, whether you showed up here reluctantly or not, the God of the universe intends to speak to you. And so there's probably, no, scratch that, there is definitely nothing better worth your time than to hear from him this morning. Second of all, I want you to know that I'm going to hold a cup of coffee probably throughout the sermon today, and that's not because it's like a, a cool thing that I get to do. It's because you don't want to hear me, nor if you're close enough in a row, feel me hacking up a lung uh, while I'm up here. Um, and so we're going to experience this with a little bit of caffeine and hopefully a whole lot of grace from the Lord this morning. Listen, there is this story in ancient Greek mythology about a man, a king named Sisyphus. Sisyphus was the king of an ancient country that many believe would eventually become Corinth, uh, the, the town that we read of, the city we read of uh, in Paul's two letters that we have in Scripture to the church in Corinth. Now, this man, Sisyphus, was a great man. He was greatly wealthy, and he was great in wisdom, but he was also great in violence and arrogance. And so as the story goes, Sisyphus routinely would trick not only humankind, but he feigned and fashioned himself to be wiser, not just of men, but wiser than even the gods. And so in multiple times and in multiple situations, Sisyphus pitted himself not just against human kingdoms that he would win, but he would pit himself against the gods and make them look like fools. But eventually, one day, Sisyphus had his day of reckoning. And it's told in Greek mythology that Hades, the ruler of the underworld, didn't just sentence him to an eternity in Hades, in the underworld, but he decided that he would sentence Sisyphus to an eternity with the worst possible punishment that he could come up with. And this was the punishment that was given Sisyphus. For all eternity, he would roll a giant stone up a great hill. And as he approached the top of the hill where finally his striving could cease... The stone was cursed to ensure that as it almost reached the top, it would always roll back down again. 
And so Sisyphus, time after time after time, would try desperately to roll the stone all the way up, all the while for eternity, being close, but as we used to say, no cigar. Now, I love the fact that this was the most heinous, diabolical, the epitome of suffering that Hades could come up with. And I love it because most of us, at first blanche, would never come up with something like this as the most diabolical and difficult of suffering. And yet, especially if you're an adult, you can think of Sisyphus and say one of two things. Either one, I feel it and I'm so glad that I don't have to experience that. Or two, you might be sitting there asking, my, asking yourself this question. Is my true name Sisyphus? Because my life feels like I'm constantly rolling a giant boulder up a hill and I can never quite get to the top. You know, in, in, in the curse as the Lord speaks it out over creation, when he gets to Adam, he essentially speaks a curse of futility. He says that because of the fact that sin has entered into the world, man's best efforts will no longer be enough. The world won't cooperate with mankind. That he will spend his days toiling over the earth and trying to provide for himself, but it just won't go as it ought to. Several years ago, uh, my wife and I, before the Lord led us into ministry, we were living in the Chicago area, and I was working for uh, a national lab. And we were pretty young. I think we had two kids at that point in time. And, and so once a week or so, my mom would typically call us and just kind of check in and, and ask how things were going. And, and what I didn't know is that I had come up with a routine phrase that I would say to her all the time. And it was mainly because I, had never call, I would never call her, and so I, I think I felt a little guilty. And so I'd have to come up with a, a good excuse why uh, I would, as her beloved and only son, never call her. So she would call, and I would say, oh, it's, just, it's been a really busy week. It's been a busy week. And, and finally, one day, she stopped me, and she asked me a question. She said, has it ever not been a busy week? Maybe it's just a normal week. And you're just really busy. I remember a short while after I had uh, heard my mother say this, I, I went into a, a meeting with my boss at work, and, and he said something to me, that, and it clicked that he said this all the time. At the end of the meeting, he, he looked at us. It was a, a monthly staff meeting, and, and he said this, we just need to get through this month. And I said to him, you say that every single month. Now listen, if you're young and free, if you uh, don't have knees that creak, or if you've never, I don't know, injured yourself while sleeping, maybe this won't resonate yet. But for all of you that have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Life constantly feels futile. Or as the teacher in Ecclesiastes puts it, life is vanity or as the psalmist tends to call it, we live life in anxious toil. And yet here in Psalm 131, the psalmist gives us a different option. 
The psalmist in 131 characterizes a life of a calmed and quieted soul. The the word calmed here literally means even. Like like a sea that was choppy but has been stilled. It it also means a a balanced soul. Uh, I remember just a a couple weeks ago, Rachel and I were were listening to a a TED talk by a, a, a psychotherapist. And he was talking about this research that they had done on brains. And he had said that the theory was before they did these brain scans was that people that struggled with mental health, whether it was depression or anxiety or or ADHD, the theory was that there were parts of the brain that wasn't working and that the the non-functioning part of the brain was what was causing these mental health issues. But what they found when they did these brain scans, is that mental health issues weren't caused by areas of the brain not working, but other areas of the brain working too much. The, the, the brain was, was out of equilibrium. This is, is what the psalmist says when he says, I have a calmed soul. A soul that is it's equal, it's steady, it's where it ought to be, but it's also a quieted soul. This is the same word that they use for someone that was mute, that could not speak. This isn't a a soul with the volume turned down a little bit, where the the chaos of the world has been decreased. This is a soul that is, is mute. There is no background noise. Perhaps there was no five year old child that lived in the house with this soul, or a seven year old child. Or a 10-year-old child. Or a 12 or a 15-year-old child. The the psalmist has a calmed and quieted soul. I just take a moment before we go on and, and just close your eyes and think of this phrase, a calmed and quieted soul. And think for a moment how, how that phrase feels. And the, the way you're, you're breathing is impacted by that phrase. A calmed and quieted soul is something we all long for. And yet, I think if we're honest, it's, all, it's also something we don't know how to get. Because if we did, if we're being honest with each other, we'd have it. The psalmist in Psalm 131 gives us some pretty strong words. He leads us into the path of a calmed and quieted soul. He tells us that we need to exchange three things. First, he shows us that a calmed and quieted soul comes from exchanging pride for humility. Exchanging pride for humility. Second, a calmed and quieted soul comes from exchanging anxiety for comfort and care. And finally, a calmed and quieted soul comes from exchanging perfectionism for the process of God. Pride for humility, anxiety for comfort and care, perfectionism for the process of God. The psalmist begins this short song with 
two distinct metaphors. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. The, the heart in, in, in Hebrew scripture and Hebrew literature doesn't just mean the, the organ, the heart, nor, nor does it simply mean the feelings. The, the heart is the, the center of, of the life. It, it's the place where our motivations come from. And this Hebrew phrase is used elsewhere and is literally translated as proud. In 2 Chronicles, King Hezekiah repents of his pride, or literally repents of his high heart in the presence of God. In Ezekiel, a foreign prince, we are told, has a heart that is lifted up too high, and he claims that he is, in fact, like a god. Similarly, the second phrase to have eyes that are lifted too high is seen as pride as well. But if, if a heart that is too high conveys the, the inward emotional thoughts of pride, then eyes that are too high conveys desires that are prideful, desires that are too high. The, the Proverbs and, and the Psalms elsewhere speak of these eyes as, as the, the window into what it is we desire. And eyes that are too high would give us a glimpse that the desires within us are set too high. They are prideful desires. The psalmist goes on and he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. That word occupy literally means to, to, to go. To go and to get or to grasp at. The psalmist says clearly, God, my, my heart is not prideful. My desires are not prideful, and my actions are not prideful. Pride here coincides with a phrase I want you to write down if you take notes, and if you don't take notes, write it down anyways. Pride coincides with the declaration, I can be like God. I can be like God. God. This is the lie that the serpent told to Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve did not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the fruit looked good and they were hungry. The temptation by the serpent was if you eat of this tree, this tree that the Lord has told you not to, this tree that the, that the Lord is holding out on you from, if you eat of it, you will be like God. But I also want you to see that the way that David confesses pride, the way that David speaks about pride here, it helps us to see something. 
One, this is a psalm of ascent, which meant that every time that the nation of Israel would make their way towards Jerusalem to to engage in one of the annual feasts, they would, as they journeyed, they would, as an entire nation, an entire people, they would recite these psalms. And so the fact that the psalmist is speaking of overcoming pride, and the fact that the nation of Israel would sing this psalm together about overcoming pride says something really pretty profound and yet very simple, which is this. We all are prone to pride. Now That might sound like a, a really biblical, Captain Obvious type of statement. It's really actually quite comforting when Scripture makes clear that we are broken and needy. That we all are prone to something like pride. Because it's an invitation to us. An invitation for all of us that are sitting here or standing up on this stage that think something like this. Man, I'm glad that Michael is preaching about pride because I know, I know this person. They really need to hear it. And the psalmist is inviting you to say, no, no. Or maybe, yes, you do know someone who really needs to hear it. And they're the same height as you. They weigh the same as you. They dress the same. They have the same name as you. It's meant to be an exhale where you can look to your left and your right and say what C.S. Lewis says is the key phrase of all friendship, which is, you too. The psalmist makes clear that pride is something that we all deal with, and yet, in the way that David is saying to the Lord, That he has overcome pride. Or in this moment he is not proud. He is also conveying that pride is destructive. That it's not of the Lord and it's not for our good. See, because this is what pride does. Pride sees the Lord and it sees us both incorrectly. Pride inherently reduces the glory and the grandeur and the bigness and the power of God. And it also elevates us. It inflates our own status. It tries to convince us that we are far better, far bigger than we actually are. Now, the problem with this is we actually need God to be really, truly big. My my seven-year-old son is one of our most creative kids, and he's also one of our most curious kids. And so he, of most of our kids, or maybe of all of our kids, is willing to sit down and, and watch something on National Geographic and be amazed by it. And so it wasn't too long ago we were watching something just about kind of our universe. 
and the, the stars within our universe and our galaxy and the planets within our galaxy and the way that they orbit and rotate and the speed at which they do them. And in this little clip, they, they talked about how if our, our rotational speed slowed down just a little bit, or if our orbit was a little bit less of an ellipse, or if it was just a little bit longer, if we went just a little bit closer to the sun or further away at the furthest points, that life could not be sustained. We need a God of the universe who can and does hold the stars in His hand that keeps our planet spinning and traveling at exactly the right distance so that life upon this earth can flourish. And in case you need me to say it, you can't handle that. And neither can I. And yet, day after day, we are prone to believe that we can rule and reign. That we can make our life filled with joy. That we can keep the peace. That we can ensure our own security. That we can ensure that our kids are raised and end up living the life that we have planned for them. We believe that we can be like God, and when we do, it crushes us. And so the psalmist invites us into the opposite of pride, which is humility. Humility is defined in the Proverbs as the fear of the Lord. Humility is awe, worship, wonder, and trembling in the face of the Lord. Now let me say this clearly Humility is not lowliness. Humility is not worthlessness. Humility is not self-deprecation. Humility is not the person that has no value and no worth that no one wants to be around. Humility sees God correctly. It sees that He is infinite. He is all-knowing, that He is all-powerful, that He is eternal, that He is self-sufficient, that He is sovereign and ruling and reigning over all things. And we are not. And yet, in humility, we recognize that that God that is that big has created us in His image. Now, there, there are two ways to combat pride. The first one is the way that we typically go about it, and it's pretty effective. It's to simply say this, you're not as big as God. God is big and you are not. Therefore, do not be proud. And, and there is a time and a space and a place, and that is 
true, and yet there is also a second way to combat pride, and it is to say this. Is it even good for us to try and be in the place of God? I heard a sermon, and if you have heard me preach, you've heard me always preach one text as well as Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Right? You'll get to know that eventually about me. That, that scripture really does connect all the way from beginning to end. And I was, was listening one time to a sermon about Genesis, and Genesis chapter 3 in specific, and they were talking about the temptation of the serpent to Eve. And this was the, the question that he posed. As the serpent said to Eve, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. Eve forgot to ask a question. And the question was, is that even a good thing? Is, is that even good for me to, to try and be as God is? Will it even lead to flourishing? Will I be happy in it? Will that lead for, to, to life and, and deeper relationship and joy for me or my husband and my offspring eventually? She, she doesn't even ask the question. There is simply an assumption built in that if we can be God, we should be God. And the answer, of course, is that we can't. But the other answer is also that it is simply not a good idea. We, uh, over the, the past several months, have, have been doing some work in our house and uh, some work in our backyard. And, and we, were, we were talking about putting in a deck in our backyard. And, and so as a part of, of putting in this deck, we, we got all these, these concrete kind of footings and they're like uh, 10, 10 or 11 inches by 10 or 11 inches square, and, and they're about 10 or 11 inches tall. They're, I don't know, 35 pounds, something like that, 35, 40 pounds, something like that, and we were thinking big. So we got a lot of concrete footings. And when we got them home, we, we started to unload them, and it was me and my wife and my two oldest boys, and of course, my five-year-old ran up beside me, and he said, Dad, I want to carry it. And I said, buddy, th this is like really heavy. And he said, you know, he kind of did what every boy, I don't know, is maybe innately to do. He stood up a little, a little taller and a little straighter, and he said, I can carry it. And I, I said, well, buddy, how, how about this? How about I carry it and you carry it with me? He said, no, I'm going to carry it. And I said, okay, how about we start here? How about you put your hands on it and I will slowly take my hands off and we'll see if you can carry it. And so he put his hands on it and he goes, oh, this is light. I said, well, hold on, let me, let me take some of the weight off. And so I, I started just to let it come down a little bit. And almost immediately, he looked up at me and he said, that's not a good idea. <laughs> right? And, and here's what's beautiful. What's beautiful is that my son came up to me and asked me, can I? And was at least somewhat semi-willing 
to hear some reasoning from his father, or at least, in the very least, was willing to allow his father to be there as he tried to lift this. Now imagine that same scenario where my five-year-old goes out to the trailer with these concrete footings and somehow is able to tilt it just so, so that it falls towards him, thinking, I'm strong. It would crush him. It's not good for him to try and carry that weight. His five-year-old body, as wonderful and full of energy as it is, was not created to bear that burden. And yet you and I, day after day, don't run up to our Father and say, Father in heaven, can I try and carry this? Instead, without turning to him, without seeking his wisdom, we take things in our life like control, like our provision, like our joy, like our security, like our value, like our worth, like our identity, and without a second thought say, I will carry this. And it crushes us. We're not even like Sisyphus where we get it part of the way up the hill. It just doesn't budge. Humility says we can't carry these things. And that's okay because our God can and does. Where are you currently trying to carry something in your life that the Lord has not asked you to carry? Where in your life are you trying to be infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, moms and dads in more than one place at once, the great provider, sovereign and ruling over all things? Where are you trying to be more wonderful, more beautiful, more fearfully made? Where in your life are you trying to be exactly who you are in need of grace and mercy and receiving it moment by moment? The psalmist begins and says, to have a calmed and quieted soul, we must exchange pride for humility. But he goes on, to say that we must exchange anxiety for care and comfort. If pride is the statement, I can be like God, write this down. Anxiety is the statement, I must be like God. If pride is the statement that says, I can be like God, anxiety says, I must be like God. If pride sees God as smaller than he actually is. Anxiety sees him as more distant, uncaring, and unloving than he actually is. The psalmist combats his own nature towards anxiety with living in the posture of a child. 
Now, if there's anything else you're going to hear in a sermon that I preach besides Genesis 1, 2, or 3, it's going to likely be a call to live like children. The psalmist tends to do it over and over and over again, comparing himself to a child, comparing the nation of Israel to beloved children, encouraging us to live in a posture of childlike faith. Jesus constantly celebrated the faith and posture of children in Mark chapter 10. It says this, they were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And so those wonderful, lovely disciples rebuked the people. But when Jesus saw it, we're told he was indignant and said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. But Jesus does more than just celebrate childlike faith. He actually commands it. He says in Matthew 18, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom. The psalmist says that the answer to anxiety is to be cared and comforted and loved like a little child. Now, the psalmist doesn't say that it's to be cared for and loved like an infant. An infant that would be unaware in some ways of the love and provision and care that it's receiving. But instead, like a child that has been weaned. A child that has been nursed by his mother, that is still right beside his mother or father day after day, still desperately in need of their provision, and yet also aware enough that it has been the faithfulness of their parent that has provided for them since the first days that they were alive. Maybe another way to put it is a weaned child has an intelligent dependence. You know, there's times when it's really kind of the Lord to make shipwreck of our life. It's really kind of the Lord sometimes to bring us to a place where we utterly fail so that in that moment of failure, we have no recourse but to confess Lord, I need you. But there is also a holy joy and comfort to living a life where moment by moment we are acquainted with our need. The psalmist invites us into that intelligent dependence. So the first question is, do we know our needs. Rachel and I have, uh, let's say we've been in a marital cycle of frustration. Does that sound pretty benign? We've been in a a tough season, a, a season where it feels like we keep getting into the same argument over and over 
and over again. Now, for the sake of everyone here, I'm going to assume that you probably don't know what that's like, married couples. And so let, let me just describe it to you. It's frustrating. It's as if we can, we can see the train coming down the tracks when it starts to roll. And yet, at this point in time, it feels like it's coming whether we want to try and stop it or not. And so this past week, we, we got into this, this same argument. And, and the argument tends to boil down to uh, this. One of us says to the spouse, I have this need, and you're not filling it. And then the other spouse responds with something that sounds like this. Yeah, I'm not filling it because I have this need, and you're not filling it. You can see the cycle, because then the other spouse responds, well, I would fill that need if you would only fill this need. And so the circle of life and the beauty of marriage goes. So we decided, after our, our, our last bout of despair and frustration in this argument, Rachel had been talking to a counselor, and she had introduced her to this thing called an emotion wheel and a need wheel which I was like, I think our kindergartner used that one time and made like, like a pinup bus or something. I don't know. Rachel said, we should try this. And my immediate response as a compassionate and kind uh, husband who loves his wife was, I'm not doing that. I don't, I don't need no need wheel, which really puts you in an awkward spot, right? Like if you say that, it's like a Jeff Foxworthy... No, that's you might be a redneck. The other guy, here's your sign. If you don't know the reference, don't worry. You never know any of my references. And so we sat down and I said, okay, I'll, I'll use this. Walk me through how to use it. And it's this wheel. And at the center are these four basic fundamental human needs. Uh, the, the need of relationship, the need of safety, the need of provision, the need of value. I'm still getting acquainted with the wheel. <laughs> Outside of the wheel, of those four needs, then it breaks each of those needs down to five or six more specific needs in that category. And further down and towards the outside of the circle, it breaks those categories further and further down. And so Rachel and I sit face to face with each other and we ask each other this question. What do you need? And Rachel, within, you know, like five seconds, is vocalizing and describing to me really lovely the needs that she has. And then she hands me the wheel and she says, what do you need? And I read every single one of the categories. And depending on the day, think, I don't need any of this or I need every single one of these. In all, in all honesty, it's been eye-opening to me. Because what this does, this wheel, 60, 70 needs it paints, is that they're basic needs that we all have. They're needs that the Lord has created us with. And I'm sitting here as a pastor, as a man who counsels not just marriages, but men and women who are in need and I'm looking at it, and I'm astonished at how many needs I have that I've never even considered. 
or that tend to operate in the background that I never acknowledge until I go without them, and then I'm simply frustrated, angry, and or bitter, which was what was happening in our conversations. Listen, let me just tell you this. You're not very good at knowing your own needs. And you're probably even worse at articulating them. And so the first step of being like a child is sitting before our Father and the words that He has already given to us and seeing just how needy we are and what those needs are. And then, then we get to do the intelligent part of the dependence. Which is then, in that moment, we get to take those needs before the Lord and ask Him, will you meet them for me? See, this is, this is what we do. Even when we feel our needs, we tend not to go to the Lord with them. And when we don't go to the Lord with those needs, you know what we fail to get? The opportunity to watch Him as He meets them. A weaned child, if you enter into the analogy, has lived watching their mother provide the very things that they need to grow and to stay alive for comfort and satisfaction. They know what they need and they know and have experienced the meeting of those needs. And the psalmist invites us to do away with anxiety by becoming so acquainted with the faithfulness of our God and the way that He meets those needs, that when they bubble up, we would know, I know where to go to with them. My sister and brother-in-law have four kids, all four adopted. Their, their oldest, Max, was adopted from Thailand when he was about three. And, and when he came home, we went over to their house to, to meet Max, uh, me and Rachel and, and our two kids at the time, and, and my mom and dad. And when we got to the house to meet Max, Angie and Stephen set us down, and they said this thing that was so odd to me. They said, listen, if Max cries, don't go to him and comfort him. If Max is hungry, don't go get food for him. If he's thirsty, don't go get a drink for him. If he gets injured, don't go and swoop him up. Let us do it. And I was like, well, share the joy. What are you doing? And they said, Max doesn't yet know that we are his mom and dad. The ones from now and to evermore will provide for him and be there for him. And he needs to start to learn that. And the psalmist says, you turn to so many other things to try and get your needs met. And so often you refuse to go to your Father in heaven and ask him to meet your needs. That you're just not learning. You're not building up the relational capital that you can say in your moment of need, I know where to go with that. I've seen him do it. But until we learn that, our soul will not be calmed and quieted. A calmed and quieted soul exchanges pride for humility. It exchanges anxiety for comfort and care from the Lord. And finally, it exchanges perfectionism for the process of God. 
this past summer, Rachel and I were at a family camp and in uh, the, the speaker, there's, there's an adult speaker and then there's kid speakers and the kid speakers always seem to be way more fun. But we were in the adult speaker session and, uh, and we get there and he's talking about marriage and we were in the season that I was describing and we're like, oh, okay, this is going to be good. And, uh, and the whole big point was you need to thrive, not just to survive. And so this was his big takeaway. So choose to thrive. I was like, are you kidding me? If I could just choose to thrive, would I be here right now? No. Like, life is not that simple. We are not that simple. So there's this peace at the end of the psalm where the psalmist says to Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore, where it's pretty easy for us to read that through the lens of choose to thrive, Israel. But the psalmist isn't saying that, and I know that for sure, and here's why. You know, before a lot of psalms, there's these superscripts. These, these words that introduce uh, perhaps the melody or the setting or the, the author of the psalms. Who's the author of this psalm? It's David. David. If you know anything of the life of David, it's that while he desperately loved God, he was always, or at least often, desperately a mess. It would be easy enough if the story of David rolled out in a way where you could go, oh, okay, David is writing this now in that place after all of that messiness where from now until evermore he will always have a calmed and quieted soul. He will always choose humility over pride. He will always exchange care and comfort over anxiety. But I've read First and Second Samuel. And I can't find a period in the life of David where pride forever ceases, where anxiety forever ceases, where struggle and strife forever ceases, or maybe I can. It's when he dies. And so here's why I bring that up. David is known after a, as a man after God's own heart, which, which doesn't mean that David was perfect in his devotion and piety towards the Lord. It meant that the orientation of David was towards the Lord. It was towards the Lord when he sinned, when he stumbled, when he failed, when he was confused, when he was afraid. He was the type of man that would fall down regularly, and yet he would get back up and again run towards the Lord. David is writing this psalm not because he's somehow arrived. He has perfected a calmed and quieted soul, but he has entered into the process of having his soul calmed and quieted by the Lord. See, because there would be a better David to come. A better David whose heart truly was a heart of a man fully, unequivocally, perfectly after God's own heart. 
and his name was Jesus. A man whose soul was calmed and quieted in the face of the Lord. A man who was perfectly humble, who perfectly knew the provision and care and comfort of our God. And by his sacrifice on the cross, that man, Christ, gave us his very spirit so that now Paul, writing about that gift, can say of you and I, he who has began a good work in us will see it to completion. See, because if you're like me, this is what you do when you read Psalm 31. That sounds great, and I'm going to try really hard. And then I'm going to feel so much shame and guilt the next time I'm proud. And the next time I'm anxious. And the next time my heart is not calmed and quieted. But we don't have to do that. Because the Lord is at work. He invites us daily to join him in that work. The fight against pride and to accept that we are beautiful, beloved dust. To live like little children, fully and utterly dependent, and yet also to live with utter and full, unwavering confidence. That the Lord is conforming us into the image of Christ. That he is conforming our hearts to look like Christ. And that he who began a good work in us will one day finally and fully remove our heart of anxious turmoil. Remove our heart of endless striving. Remove our heart of pride. Remove our heart of anxiety and forever replace it with the heart of Christ. Pray with me.